Okay, so our next diagnosis um, is autism spectrum disorder. Um, autism spectrum disorder. Let's see. I'm picking up on uh, picking up with slide number nine um, in um, in this last chapter, chapter thirteen. Um, <clears throat> so let's see. Uh, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, the diagnosis. The name is new for DSM five. Uh, prior to DSM-5, uh, there were actually four different disorders um, that ended up being kind of folded into this one diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder in the DSM-5. Uh, in the previous edition, the DSM-4 or T 4TR, um, the four diagnoses were uh, autism or autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, childhood disintegrative disorder, and kind of a catch-all category of pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. You see, all these together were referred to in the, as uh, being in the general class of pervasive developmental disorders. And so, um, so if a person's symptoms didn't clearly meet one of those categories, um, then it was kind of in that catch-all category of um, not otherwise specified. Um, let's see, um, uh, uh, childhood disintegrative disorder um, essentially reflected a pattern of where the child developed normally for the first two years uh, and then started to disintegrate, in a sense, and show um, uh, uh, patterns that came out as um, like autism. Um, there's a genetic condition called Rett's disorder, which um, which was probably what was responsible for most of the diagnoses of uh, childhood disintegrative disorder. Um, it's also possible that um, that many of many kids with autism don't really show, it's kind of hard to see symptoms sometimes until they get to be about two or, or older because of some, because of the nature of the symptoms. The, the symptoms are about, um, you know, um, uh, flexibility and social interaction. Action, and we don't really expect that from newborn babies anyway. Um, and so it, it may be that, um, that that was part of that also. Um, uh, again, there is still a real pattern uh, for that, um, uh, usually associated with um, Rett's disorder. But uh, Asperger's disorder, um, uh, most people now are familiar with uh, Asperger's disorder. Uh, technically, Asperger's disorder is no longer an official diagnosis. Um, uh, it was folded into this diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. Um, and um, uh, in previous editions of the DSM, though, the, the major distinction between Asperger's disorder and autistic disorder, or autism, um, was that um, folks with Asperger's disorder didn't have any uh, language impairments uh, or cognitive impairments, right? So they would have normal language functioning, uh, normal cognitive function, normal intellectual functioning, uh, or even possibly superior intellectual functioning. Um, uh, but um, but also some of the um, uh, uh, fixed fixedness of routines, uh, some of the difficulties with social emotional reciprocity, things like that that went along with autism. So that was the major discriminating uh, thing between those two diagnoses: is that um, uh, people with Asperger's disorder didn't have any kind of language impairment or intellectual impairment. Um, however, uh, in um, the current edition of the DSM, uh, all these disorders are within this one uh, diagnosis. Now, for a, for a good while, people had talked about autism um, as being on a spectrum or a spectrum disorder. Uh, and um, to the extent that um, sometimes people will just use the term spectrum uh, and associate that with an autism spectrum. Uh, be careful with that because as we've seen in the semester, there are a lot of different spectrums, right? There's a schizophrenia spectrum and, you know, a lot of other stuff. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, people had kind of talked about autism as being on a spectrum of different types or severities of kinds of symptoms. Um, and um, and the authors of the DSM-5 DSM uh 
uh, put those all into one diagnosis. There's some good and bad things about that. Um, one of the good things is that it does call attention to some of the similarities and the fact that um, many of these symptoms do exist on a spectrum. Um, one of the bad parts about it uh, is that um, this ends up being a pretty large or pretty broad spectrum. Um, uh, and so it can become difficult uh, to even describe, it's kind of difficult for me now to describe some of the symptoms uh, that folks with autism spectrum disorder are likely to have because they're so broad. I mean, uh, in terms of level of functioning, you know, we can have people with autism spectrum disorder now who previously would have been diagnosed with Asperger's disorder, who can be, you know, have graduate degrees and be doing, you know, academic research. Um, and we can also have people with the same diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder uh, who are at, at, a, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, are um, unable to care for themselves for bathing and dressing and completely unable to communicate with other people, right? So, I mean, that's a huge spectrum. So it becomes a little bit hard to describe what the symptoms of autism is like. It's kind of like when we were talking about schizophrenia, that there are so many different kinds of uh, manifestations of symptoms that it becomes hard to generalize and talk about how it is typically. Still, that's how it is now, the uh, diagnosis of uh, autism spectrum disorder. Um, many, uh, many folks with Asperger's disorder really objected to um, this combination, this change in the naming uh, to combining um, all these disorders into autism spectrum disorder. They were afraid that um, that part of uh, what makes people with Asperger's unique is going to get lost, um, you know, under this um, full umbrella uh, diagnosis. Um, what I've found is that um, often now people with uh, who would have been referred to as having Asperger's disorder, a lot of them will still use the term Asperger's. It's, uh, it's still, a lot of people still find it a useful term, uh, even though it's not part of the diagnostic nomenclature anymore. Um, but, um, but otherwise, people may use the term high-functioning autism or something like that, um, meaning that, um, you know, the person's uh, 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 functioning overall and intellectual functioning and things like that are, uh, are at normal to high levels. Um, uh, but, um, but again, um, this covers a pretty broad, uh, spectrum. Um, as the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder goes now, though, there are two major categories of symptoms. And, um, I split these up on my next two slides, one on each, one on slide 10 and one on slide 11. Uh, so what these are, are first off deficits in social communication and social interaction. And then on the next slide, we'll look at um, uh, restrictive, repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. Right? These are going to be seen in all folks with uh, autism spectrum disorder, um, but to varying degrees. Right? So, um, so if we go to slide 10 and look at uh, deficits in social communication and social uh, interaction, um, uh, some folks with autism um, are... Uh, um, let's see, uh, very, um, have very poor eye contact, very poor, uh, uh, interaction with other people don't seem to show an interest in other people. Um, at higher levels, this can come across as, um, uh, not understanding or not caring about other people's distress. So like a kid with autism might see another kid, uh, hurt themselves on the playground, but not really respond, uh, to that. Um, uh, kids with autism will often, um, not engage in spontaneous 
sharing of things that they enjoy. Like a lot of little kids, if they, um, you know, they're, uh, they find some cool rock or something like that, they're going to bring it to somebody and say, Hey, look at this cool rock I found. Um, and kids with autism are, are not often going to do that kind of stuff. They may be interested in that rock. They may be very interested in that rock. Um, but they're really not interested in making the social connection, you know, with, with parents or other kids or anything like that. A lot of the time, um, uh, to share those kinds of interests. Um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, a lot of um, a lot of times, uh, people with autism have difficulty with social emotional reciprocity. Uh, reciprocity means um, back and forth, give and take, uh, kind of stuff, right? And um, and so the idea of social emotional reciprocity is that we tend to reflect. Um, the uh, emotional state of other people and in, in uh, uh, shared kinds of emotional experiences so that, um, you know, if you were to come to me and you were looking down and sad and you gave me some sad news, I would sort of also drop my voice and be a little bit more sad and serious in a sense, right? Um, and that's kind of the idea of social emotional reciprocity. And, um, uh, and a lot of times folks with autism don't really do that. Um, they're often, they may not be interested in other people's emotional experience, or they may not understand it, or they may not know how to respond to it, or something like that, but at different sorts of levels. Um, uh, can have deficits in nonverbal communication, so difficulty in understanding um, uh, gestures, um, facial expressions in particular. Um, one theory of autism is that uh, parts of the brain that are involved in scanning faces and getting information from faces works differently in folks with autism, essentially. Um, there, are, um, there are fairly sizable parts of our brain that are um, dedicated to reading human faces. Uh, it's something, you know, I mean, we're good at it. We, we get a lot of information from other people's faces. And, you know, there's even a tendency for us to see faces in, um, in random objects sometimes, right? We're very, very tuned to faces. Um, but even in, um, uh, uh, studies of babies uh, with autism, um, their visual scanning of faces doesn't seem the same. They're not um, uh, picking out the important, <clears throat> uh, significant uh, facial features that are going to tell them things about um, emotional state or communication or anything like that. Um, so a lot of times folks with autism spectrum disorder uh, uh, have these kind of deficits of nonverbal communication. Um, also develop deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. Um, I sort of mentioned before that they may not be interested in sharing things with other people or having shared emotional, shared social kinds of experiences. Um, uh, again, this may be um, that they're not aware of these kinds of things. It may be that they're not able to do these kinds of things. It may be that they are um, not particularly interested in those things, but often you the end result is that you see some of these kinds of um, uh, deficits. And so, well, we'll talk about treatment later, but um, a lot of treatment is going to involve um, uh, teaching people to be engaged, uh, to be more socially engaged, uh, and get information from other people and their nonverbals. If we go to the next category of symptoms of uh, on slide number 11, restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. Um, a lot of folks with autism are um, uh, very um, interested in routines and having things be the same uh, and, um, and can have a real difficulty with when things change. Um, uh, they'll often like 
to have uh, a schedule and a plan and uh, to be able to know what to expect and, um, and have a lot of difficulty if there's a need to change that schedule. Something comes up um, and, you know, that's going to be a real challenge for a kid with autism or a person with autism, um, such that this is one of those things that parents of kids with autism kind of know is liable to um, lead to uh, uh, behavioral problems with the child or emotional problems with the child, uh, that the child is liable to have um, an outburst uh, uh, when there's a need to change something or something comes up uh, unpredictably. Um, a lot of times folks with autism are very interested in uh, particular kind of repetitive movements. Um, uh, they may have kind of body movements of their own that are uh, kind of repetitive and don't seem at first glance to serve much of a purpose. Um, these are referred to as uh, stereotyped behaviors or stereotypies. And um, stereotyped here means that it's uh, something that's particular to that individual and that it's typical for that individual. That they, um, uh, uh, and this would include things like uh, hand flapping or rocking or um, uh, even um, hitting oneself on the face or hitting one's head. So sometimes these stereotyped movements can be self-injury kinds of things that, you know, you look at this behavior and you're like, wow, that's got to hurt. Um, and, uh, and so some of it, um, some of it can be problematic. A lot of times, um, uh, people with autism will show these, um, repetitive movement, uh, patterns in, um, in one of two categories, in one of two situations. One is, um, that, um, that they are, uh, in a sense, bored and not engaged with anything. And so they will do it in order to, um, uh, kind of, and so they're kind of referred to as self-stimulatory behaviors. Um, the other is if they're overstimulated, uh, in a sense, um, uh, if they um, if they feel like um, like there's too much noise or too much change or too much demands being placed on them, then they'll liable to move into this. So um, uh, so a lot of people look at these kind of stereotyped or repetitive movements as being a way of trying to regulate, right? Trying to self-regulate, um, and um, uh, you know, kids with autism have difficulty with self-regulating. Um, uh, People with autism are liable to get interested in uh, small patterns of movement. You know, uh, you might hear of folks with autism or kids with autism being entranced by a ceiling fan and just watching the ceiling fan or, or watching uh, leaves blow back and forth in the wind um, and, um, you know, be very much in, uh, entranced with that. Um, kids with autism are liable to play with the same kind of toys that other kids play with, but they'll sometimes play with them in a different way. Like they may be more interested just in how things move, you know, how the arms of a, of a, an action figure move rather than what the action figure actually represents. Um, and so less likely to engage in kind of imaginative, uh, play or role playing kind of play for sure. Um, uh, but, um, but maybe interested in things for their, their shapes and their textures and their patterns of repetitive movement. Um, many times kids with autism will have, uh, particular objects that they're very much attached to, uh, that they, um, sort of always want to have with them a, a particular toy or something like that. And, um, and that may be something that's involved in their stereotyped, uh, behaviors of, you know, uh, fidgeting with that toy in a certain way, uh, as a way of trying to self-regulate. 
Um, let's see, at a higher range of um, uh, uh, on the spectrum, um, you know, folks with uh, with higher functioning um, autism are just liable to get very interested in particular kinds of topics um, and not at all interested in other things. Uh, and so, like, you might get um, kids with, you know, what we used to call Asperger's, who are um, just really, really interested in, I don't know, airplanes. And they learn everything there is to know about airplanes, and they want to tell you everything there is to know about airplanes. And they get, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of times their uh, discussion comes back to airplanes. At the same time, this child might be uh, might have difficulty in reading other people's social cues, right? So maybe we're in middle school and this kid wants to tell everybody about airplanes and, you know, they'll listen to a certain extent and then they kind of get tired of listening to, of hearing about airplanes. Um, but the child with uh, autism may not pick up on that, right? And so, um, so kids with um, higher functioning autism uh, are liable to be seen as a little odd by other kids, and um, and maybe even a little bit, um, I don't know, um, uh, annoying or something like um, like because they get stuck on particular kinds of ideas. Um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, so tend to be very much interested in. Uh, you know, particular topics and not at all interested in some others, right? So very, uh, very fixed um, in their interests. Um, this, by the way, may be something that um, that uh, folks with Asperger's can capitalize on in that, um, you know, they, um, they can often uh, get into very specialized areas of um, uh, academics or research or something like that, right? And focus very strongly on that. Um, a lot of folks with autism also have uh, differences in sensory threshold levels, um, uh, to the extent that um, that there is a theory of autism that puts this as the central or core characteristic of it. Um, but what it comes down to is that um, a lot of times people with autism seem to have hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input. And in the same person, it can be higher in one sense and lower in another, right? So it's, um, so it's liable to be different. What I mean by this is that um, uh, a person with autism might be very, very sensitive to particular sounds uh, to the extent that when they hear those sounds, it looks like the child is in pain um, and, uh, or, you know, and they really react strongly to it. Um, most people with autism have very strict um, uh, uh, preferences as, as according to foods that they'll eat and foods that they'll tolerate. And it may be about um, uh, taste, but a lot of times it's about texture of foods uh, and, you know, wanting the sameness in, in things. Uh, and so won't like a lot of kinds of things, uh, a lot of kinds of foods. Um, this, um, this hyper and hypo reactivity to sensory input is another thing uh, that may predispose somebody to what people will usually refer to as a meltdown, uh, where the child just gets overstimulated and overwhelmed. And that can be kind of hard to predict sometimes, unless you know the person, uh, what kind of things they're liable to, um, you know, respond to uh, um, uh, as being um, hypersensitive to, right? Uh, uh, an over... Uh, 
uh, overstimulation of, right? Um, hyposensitivity. Um, uh, sometimes folks with autism, you know, may not respond to some kinds of sensory input like you might expect them to. And, and sometimes self-injury behaviors go into, uh, fit into this where, where a child might be, uh, clawing at themselves or hitting their head on the wall or, um, biting themselves or something like that. And you would think from an outsider's perspective, you would think, wow, that's got to hurt. You would think they would stop doing that because it hurts. But often it seems like the child may not actually be uh, feeling it the same way that other people would feel it. Now, of course, that, that can become dangerous, right? Because um, a person can still uh, uh, hurt themselves uh, with some of that stuff, even though they're not feeling the pain, right? As I mentioned, um, this, uh, these differences in uh, uh, sensory input are kind of the central way of looking at autism, um, particularly from the point of view of occupational therapy. And occupational therapists do a lot of the uh, treatment for um, uh, folks with autism, especially kids with autism in the school system and stuff like that. Um, and they tend to um, focus on the idea that this is a problem of sensory integration. Um, now, uh, there was also proposed, that was proposed as a diagnosis in itself in the DSM-5, and it was not included because the, uh, because the research on it wasn't very strong um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a diagnostic label of sensory integration disorder, I think they wanted to call it. Um, but, um, but still, uh, for a lot of folks with autism, they'll, they'll talk about them as having sensory integration problems uh, or sensory modulation problems uh, and tend to focus on treatment modalities that, um, that target sen different kinds of sensory input, even um, kinesthetic sensory input, like having the child, you know, move in um, swings or, uh, or spinning around or rockers or, um, or even like getting wrapped up in therapy mats and have pressure put on them and stuff like that. Um, this is often a part of occupational therapy treatment for kids with autism. And that's where it comes from. It comes from this idea of uh, trying to teach uh, some of the um, um, uh, sensory integration kind of things. Now, in all honesty, I've looked at this research and um, I'm not convinced by it. Um, uh, a lot of this treatment is done, but um, uh, and they'll sometimes report improvements. However, a lot of that treatment, uh, a lot of those treatment studies are not controlled. And, you know, what kids tend to do over time is they tend to get better, they tend to improve. And so we would really need controlled studies to see if that were working. Um, but, um, but that is often part of uh, treatment as usual uh, in, um, in the school system, right, uh, for kids with autism. Um, let's see. Um, autism is often comorbid with intellectual disability. Uh, I used to know a statistic for the overlap of these, but that's no longer valid because of the change in the um, uh, diagnosis. It used to be that 50% of folks with autism also had what was then called mental retardation. But now since the diagnosis of autism has been opened up to a lot more people, it's certainly going to be lower than that. Um, but it is possible that, um, uh, and it certainly does happen, that um, that folks with autism can also have a diagnosis of intellectual disability. This, by the way, is one of the um, possible reasons why, um, why we've seen such an increase in autism diagnoses. 
Um, because uh, a generation ago, autism as a diagnosis was not very well known. Um, I honestly remember being in the first grade and the teacher and the teacher's assistant were talking and saying that they were going to get a new student in the class and that student was artistic. And they were wondering why they told them they were artistic. <laughs> what did that have to do with anything? Um, <laughs> you know, so they weren't even familiar with the term autism. Um, uh, so what probably happened, you know, a generation or so ago is that a lot of kids who would have, who, who probably should have been diagnosed with autism were just seen as having intellectual disability. And so we're given that diagnosis and, you know, treated accordingly. Uh, and so now with much better recognition of autism symptoms, um, people are much better at identifying the differences between autism spectrum disorder and intellectual disability. And also knowing that those can be comorbid, that, but they aren't necessarily, but they, that they're separate things. So that's, uh, that's certainly at least one of the reasons why we've seen an increase in autism diagnoses. Uh, if we go to um, uh, slide number 12, which I, I guess I did to talk about comorbidity, um, uh, severity for autism spectrum disorder is according to three classes of severity. And um, uh, these are, I'm not real wild about the wording of these. Um, the severity levels are requiring support, requiring substantial support, and requiring very substantial support. Now, to be clear, in the DSM system, there are pages and pages that delineate very specifically the differences between these levels. And so they are pretty well defined. What I'm worried about, though, is that, um, you know, if, if that's all you see is requiring support or requiring substantial support, that people are going to miss the distinctions between those, and those don't sound all that much different. But notice that, um, that those severity levels are also essentially going to be classed according to level of adaptive functioning, right? Um, in a similar way that we saw for the diagnosis of intellectual disability, such that um, it's going to be uh, more um, severe, depending upon how much um, outside support the person is going to require, right? So, um, uh, all right, uh, the, um, hmm, let's see, treatment for autism spectrum disorder. Um, uh, the treatment of choice for autism spectrum disorder is applied behavior analysis, which is essentially behavior modification. Um, you see, uh, behavior modification is essentially the, um, the application of behavioral principles, classical conditioning, operant conditioning, operational learning, uh, observational learning, in order to deliberately change things about people's behavior. Um, and uh, that was the original term for, for that kind of intervention. Well, sometime around the 1980s or so, uh, a lot of us who were in this field, uh, well, I wasn't quite by then, I wasn't until the 90s, but um, a lot of people in the field were like, you know, the term behavior modification is being misunderstood. And, um, and people got the idea that it had something to do with um, doing something to people, essentially forcing people or brainwashing people or something like that. And so, so a lot of folks in the field preferred to use the term applied behavior analysis. And essentially that became the term rather than behavior modification.
Well, then, uh, you know, starting in the 90s and certain, certainly uh, after that, um, uh, a lot of treatment for folks with autism came from, uh, that was successful, came from this uh, area. And so people started to associate the term applied behavior analysis with specifically the treatment for autism, even though applied behavior analysis also has a lot of other applications. So actually, ironically enough, uh, the term behavior modification has kind of come back in some areas. So usually now when people say applied behavior analysis, they usually do ref are referring specifically to the treatment of kids with autism or sometimes uh, kids with um, intellectual disabilities. Uh, applied behavior analysis works. Um, the problem with it is that it is intensive uh, and expensive because it involves, it often involves one-on-one -on -one treatment with very skilled um, uh, teachers. Those teachers are liable to be um, special education teachers, speech language pathologists, uh, occupational therapists. Um, <clears throat> there is also a specialty now in um, applied behavior analysis. Um, and um, <clears throat> Uh, but this is going to be very much individually targeted uh, for that child to work on improvements uh, in their abilities. Um, I'd really like to tell you more about applied behavior analysis, but I'm getting to the 30-minute mark on this recording, and I'm going to get cut off. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. Um, one of the um, one of the uh, parts of applied behavior analysis for kids with autism involves. A, um, a strategy of teaching called errorless or error-free learning, learning without errors. Now, um, uh, at first glance, uh, that seems a little strange because, um, because a lot of times we learn from our mistakes, right? That's what mistakes do for us sometimes. But when little kids with autism um, make mistakes, they often perseverate on those mistakes. Uh, and so they're much more likely to remember the mistake than and, and not be able to go back to uh, a correct answer. So even if it's, you know, having a child learn to point to a picture of a particular food item or something like that, point to the cupcake and you've got a few pictures uh, in front of them. Um, uh, uh, applied behavior analysis will involve will often involve uh, setting up ways to make it so that the child is almost guaranteed to get it right, so that they won't make any errors, uh, and that's going to involve a um, uh, um, a system of giving um, some support. Uh, as much support as the child needs and gradually pulling that support away so that essentially the child does it right without ever having to make very many mistakes at all, right? Um, that's a very difficult thing uh, for a, a teacher or a therapist to learn how to do. I'm not good at it. I don't, I can't do it. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, um, it's a very useful kind of thing uh, done for um, for folks with autism individually. Uh, I'm running out of time. I'll pick up with um, I'll pick up with the last thing on the next recording because I think I'm going to get cut off in a few seconds. Here comes some bongo drum. <laughs> <laughs>